0: Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on root cause healing, and oftentimes that starts with the carnivore cure elimination diet to start with gut healing. Today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist. And if you have been in the wellness space, you probably have come across one of his best-selling books. He is a five times New York best-selling author. He is the author of Grain Brain, of Brain Maker, and these books are really, really good at breaking down science and just helping you to find another lever to get to root cause healing. So Dr. Perlmutter has a new book out called Drop Acid, and it's all about uric acid. Now it's true that your uric acid can go up on a carnivore diet, and it's because of the purines that come from it. I'll let the Interview. explain a little bit more about that, but it's a very eye-opening and very important discussion that we need to be having in the carnivore space, especially if you're eating fruits, especially if you're eating a lot of organ meats, and especially if you're eating a lot of meat and seafood. Dr. Perlmutter received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, and he has extensively published many peer-reviewed journals in the archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. He is a frequent lecturer at Harvard University and is also an associate professor at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. I'm looking forward to you guys listening to this conversation. It's so imperative for carnivores and people that follow a meat based diet. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. David Perlmutter. Thank you so much for joining me today a big fan. I've read your Grain Brain book. I've also read your Brain Maker. They're very good uh, books with solid information that helps you to find different lovers to possibly get to root cause healing. So I'm a huge fan. Um, for those of the people that are listening and watching that may not know you, do you mind sharing who you are?
1: Well, I'm a husband and a father, pr- first and foremost, uh, trying to be as successful at both of those two tasks as I can be. Uh, I am a neurologist by training, uh, a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and those might seem uh, pretty uh, diametrically opposed disciplines, that's for sure. But, you know, I think in the context of how we're going to spend our time today, uh, actually very, very much uh, involved with each other. Um, I am an author. I've written a few books along the way, uh, really trying to get out my messaging, things that I think are important. I know it's been considered uh, at least to be kind, outside of the box. And I will say that the mission really has always been not to be outside the box, but to make the box bigger, more inclusive. Um, messaging that really gives people empowerment in terms of what is the science telling us uh, It underlies our most dreaded situations, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, Alzheimer's, and really trying just to target those issues with lifestyle change, in other words, and empowerment to really redefine our own health de- uh, destiny. So that's, I guess that's the nutshell, right?
0: Yeah, no, that's really good. Thank you. And I um, applaud you for, you know, getting into the space of there might be more than just medicine to do a lot of healing. So thank you for that. I know you have a new book coming out in February uh, called Drop Acid. I saw a print. So thank you for that. It was um, really good information. Um, My community eats a mostly meat-based or meat-only diet a lot of times for healing as an elimination diet, and obviously there are a lot of purines and meats. If we could talk a little bit about what is uric acid, why does it matter what is even a purine, and why that may even affect our community?
1: I'd be delighted. So uh, the beauty of what we call the love diet, lower uric values, and, you know, maybe I should back up a little bit and talk about why we're here. Why is uric acid on the table? Why we're we talking about it? And then we'll look at the inroads and dietary inroads and how they influence uric acid levels. In, in my day, uh, and really uh, still pretty pervasive is the notion that uric acid is important only in the context of something called gout.
0: Right.
1: In other words, if your uric acid is sky high, you might form gout crystals in your fingers and toes. They apparently hurt, you know, really quite aggressively. I've never had that. But uh, so in these few people, very small percentage of our population, they would want to pay attention to the things that raise uric acid, things like purines, which are the breakdown products of DNA and RNA. Obviously, more of DNA and RNA are found in foods that have a lot of cells in them, like organ meats and other meats uh, that we'll talk about. But that's been the context of uric acid and the the real research that has opened up the window in terms of what uric acid is, by the way, also involved in, meaning metabolic health. Mm -hmm. um, It really happened in earnest over the past 20 years. But the reality is that a really powerful textbook was written about uric acid in uh, metabolism Uh, being really kind of a central player. That was published in 1894 by Dr. Alexander Haig. And so people have been talking about it for an awful long time. And yet, you know, when I was in medical school back in the day, uric acid, gout, maybe kidney stones, but we really didn't, you know, there was not much uh, going on in terms of anything further that uric acid would do. Over the past 20 years, however, around the globe, we've uh, come to a place of understanding that uric acid is so much more than just this end product of the metabolism of three things, fructose, sugar, uh, alcohol, and what I mentioned earlier, purines, the breakdown product of DNA and RNA. In 2016, a collaborative paper from researchers in Japan and Turkey uh, was put out, and just by giving you the title, the title uh, said, Uric Acid in Metabolic Syndrome from Innocent Bystander to central player. That really sums up why we're here today, because you know we've known for a long time that interestingly, when you see a patient with diabetes, their uric acid levels are oftentimes high, or obesity, or hypertension, or dyslipidemia, or elevated triglycerides. Oddly enough, their uric acid seemed to be high. And we, we kind of just said, well, whatever, that's kind of interesting, but let's move on. Well, it turns out that it's not just happening to be elevated. It's the reason uh, and uh, important reason why these situations develop. In other words, it's playing a causal role, a mechanistic role, meaning elevated uric acid activates pathways that we will talk about that raise blood sugar, that make the body make body fat, increase the blood pressure, all great things. It's great to have a lot of body fat and a high blood pressure and insulin resistance and diabetes. Yeah, it's a great thing. If you were in our paleolithic times Mm -hmm. facing starvation in that context, you want to be insulin resistant because you want higher blood sugar to power your brain. So you can avoid uh, starvation and predation, meaning you not having food and not being eaten by another animal. You want to keep your brain powered. You want to have a little extra fat so you can make it through the winter and you want to have a little extra fat so that you don't dehydrate. We're going to unpack that a little bit later as well. So, The research over the past two decades reveals that when, for example, fructose is metabolized and forms uric acid, it's a danger alert signal for the human body saying winter is coming, make fat, raise the blood pressure, increase what's called gluconeogenesis, the production of sugar in the liver, because we're going to need to power our brains because, uh, we, we don't wanna be eaten and we gotta be clever so we can find some food. So you know, that's something that took place uh, a change in our ancestors between 14 and 17 million years ago. That's when there were over a long period of time, over a million years, when the earth was cooler during what's called the middle Miocene period. Because the earth got cooler, there was kind of a pressure on the uh, existing primates favoring those who could make more fat and how they made more fat was they developed over time mutations in the genes that code for an enzyme called uricase, the enzyme that breaks down uric acid. And what they did was they silenced the gene. They silenced the enzyme so that they couldn't break down uric acid. Uric acid levels would go up and they would make more fat. Now it's not like they became fat. You know, our primate ancestors didn't get big bellies and, you know, uh, weren't uh, lying around the house, Uh, but they just had a little bit of an advantage, just a little bit more fat, a little bit more blood sugar, a little bit more inflammation to protect them from infection, a little bit uh, more insulin resistance uh, that allowed them an edge. And, you know, over a long period of time, just a small edge can be really quite dramatic. We inherited that issue with respect to the uricase enzyme. So humans uric acid levels are four to five times higher than those of many other mammals. Mm -hmm. And it serves again as a survival mechanism in, you know, for 99.99% of our time on this planet, we were lucky that our uric acid levels were elevated because it worked well with the environment in which we were an environment that didn't guarantee food, didn't guarantee water and an environment where we had to really use our heads uh, to, to find food, to keep from being eaten and to survive. Nowadays, those powerful triggers, primarily fructose, that's what our ancestors, how they triggered the production of uric acid. They would eat ripened berries in the late fall and in the uh, early, uh, uh, late summer and in the early fall, ripened blueberries, for example. And that would be a, an environmental signal saying, hey, winter's coming, you better start making some body fat and those of our ancestors that made more body fat, again, through this mechanism of uric acid would survive. Now we are putting away pounds and making blood sugar and raising our blood pressure uh, for the winter that never is going to come. We're not going to run out of food, quite likely, and water. So this presents what we call an evolutionary environmental mismatch, whereby those powerfully sur- a survival uh, related mechanisms that kept us alive all these years are now being confronted with a dramatically changed environment. Now, that began about 14 to 17,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture. That was just yesterday. And then, much more aggressively, in the past 150 years, with the profound and sudden increase in targeting that mechanism in our physiology with sugar. So make no mistake about it. You know, the the biggest issue is the sugar in the American, in the Western, in the global diet uh, that is telling us to get ready for the winter that never comes and just, you know, creating this metabolic mayhem. And it's not just that we become metabolically deranged. It's important to understand that these metabolic issues set the stage for things like coronary artery disease and Alzheimer's and diabetes And several forms of cancer. So this becomes very, very important.
0: I saw a lot of that in your book, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, Do you think then that it can almost arguably be the uric acid measure in your blood work, um, be more powerful of a tool than let's say looking at LDL?
1: It's hard to say which is more important. Is it LDL? Is it particle size? Is it HDL triglycerides? Is it uh, HDL cholesterol ratio? Is it glucose? Is it uh, using a continuous glucose monitor, the area under the curve? Is it A1C? Is it uric acid? And I, I, difficult to say sure. how you rank them. Number one and number two. More importantly, how would you rank them uh, for an individual based sure. upon his unique or her unique personalized issues? So uh, that's you know precision medicine. Suffice it to say that it's very, very important. It ranks amongst the top in terms of things like body mass index and blood pressure and fasting blood glucose. It's really that important. And it's really uh, what you and I are talking about right now is brand new. I mean, you're hearing, you know, just uh, a smattering of this here and there suddenly about uric acid and, uh, you know, we're going to blow it wide open and really enable people to have yet another powerful tool in their toolbox. There are a lot of neat developments really quite recently that are allowing people to really rein in uh, their metabolic health and gain control, you know, far more aggressively than they would if they simply visited their doctor once a year and checked in. You know, you might have a pretty good blood sugar on that particular morning, but on the other hand, you know, you may have terrible uh, issues during the course of that one year that you don't know about. Same thing with uric acid. And, you know, the beauty of the whole scenario is that you can check your uric acid at home, just like you do your blood sugar. You can do a finger stick uric acid test. You can buy a monitor without a prescription online. Uh, I use a device called ua U-A for uric acid, Sure, S-U-R-E. And, you know, right away, what is your uric acid? And, you know, our recommendation based upon, reviewing more than 400 scientific uh, peer-reviewed journals is that you want to keep it at 5.5 milligrams per deciliter uh, or lower. Now, you know, the mainstream would say, Hey, if your uric acid is lower than seven, you're in the normal range. And I'll make two comments about that. First, that is a normal range as it relates to gout only because You know, that's when people are at a much higher risk. And it's also related to when uh, that uric acid precipitates out to form those extracellular crystals. The other thing is, I think for everybody listening to your podcast and people who listen to my podcast who are open-minded and wanting to do their very best, the normal range is absolutely not good enough. Because what is normal? Normal is average. And uh, we need to do better. We need to go for optimal So as it relates to things like cardiometabolic issues, we want 5.5 milligrams per deciliter or lower.
0: Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. What is uric acid? Why does our body produce it? I know we get some from alcohol, fructose, and uh, from the purines and the breakdown of them. One factor is that it helps with the uric kinase, and it helps to maybe store some of the fat, but is it the light switch that's now turning on metabolic disease. So the winner's coming. What is uric acid?
1: We had considered uric acid to be simply this product of our metabolism, sort of an end product that we would excrete, you know, most of it. And so some of it would remain in our systems to just sort of hang around. That makes no sense at all, right? Uh, And that, um, you know, as you mentioned, it is the end product, the final step, in the metabolism in humans and in other primates of fructose, that fructose goes through a multitude of, step, of steps. There are various enzymes, beginning importantly with uh, what's called fructokinase, which uh, then increases the metabolism of fructose all the way down uh, through hypoxanthine, xanthine, and then uric acid, with one very important, and we'll probably talk about it later, enzyme in that chain. Uh, called xanthine oxidase that's very important because we can influence xanthine oxidase aggressively with nutritional supplements like luteolin and quercetin. We'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. But it is the end product in humans. It's not the end product uh, in other animals that do have uricase enzyme functionality, which we don't. They then uh, metabolize it further to yet another waste product called allantoin. So then they're able to excrete that much more aggressively. But for us, that's the end of the line. We hope that we excrete a lot of it. Uh, Some of it is actually reabsorbed. So we maintain what we end up measuring. That is our level. The um, metabolism of alcohol is quite similar. Of course, it doesn't use fructokinase. And the purines cr- that are created by the breakdown product of DNA and RNA form AMP and IMP, which then through the same pathway, ultimately end up as forming uric acid. So, you know, for so many years for gout patients, they were told, don't eat a lot of meat, don't drink a lot of alcohol, and that'll bring your uric acid level down. I think it's good advice for a gout patient, but you know, what got left out of that messaging was the fructose. And right. by and large these days, that's the big issue. Uh, the amount of fructose in the human American diet is, is phenomenal. I mean, it increased between 1970, and 1990, we uh, consumed 1000% more fructose in the oh. turn of the century. In the 1900s, we were consuming about 10 to 15 grams a day. Now it's 55 grams, you know, where is it coming from? Well, yeah, you know, everybody gets drinking soda, you know sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. That's 55% fructose. We get that so we cut out the soda, but hey, it's the same amount of fructose in a glass of wonderful organic orange juice or apple, or apple juice, you know, pretty much the same amount of fructose. So we have to then start thinking about where is our fructose coming from? You know, when we talk about the fact that 60% of the packaged foods in our grocery stores have added sweetener. And by and large, that's fructose or a derivative of fructose. That's scary, right? Because that's triggering the alarm signal to make fat for winter. And when you look around and you see um, the what's going on with overweight and obesity, you know, a third of American adults right now isn't just overweight, it's uh, a third are obese, and that number will increase uh, to fifty percent in eight years, into the year twenty thirty. That's very worrisome when we think of the morbidity and mortality associated just with obesity. But it also triggers uh, insulin resistance. When we look at the you know eighty million Americans who are either diabetic or darn close, hypertension. When we have one in 10 school-age children between the ages of 12 and 18 now diagnosed as having hypertension. Adolescents, you know, these are kids with high blood pressure. That is, is astounding. And so we need to do everything we can. And, you know, my purpose has been for many, many years is to reveal, you know, pull back the curtains and reveal what's going on. In this case, mechanistically, I mean, we've known about fructose since a really powerful article in 1970 in the journal The Lancet that really said, you know, it looks like fructose is related to various metabolic problems, but we didn't fully understand how it happens. And now that we see this whole connection to uric acid and how, unlike the metabolism of other things in the human body, when uric acid is metabolized, it actually increases its own production. You know, normally when something gets produced, then it shuts itself down so it can maintain a homeostasis. Not so with uric acid, it gets amplified as a way of really doing its best to keep us alive when we can't find food.
0: My community is mostly meat based, uh, lots are meat only, and they eat a lot of foods and seafoods. Um, some people eat the organ meats like liver, which is the highest in periods, but Seafood's high in purines as well, and so are some of the meats. Maybe chicken a little less so, but if we know that alcohol is one that produces more uric acid, same thing with fructose, and then same thing with meats. If we were to reduce all of the the fruits and or the the sugary fructose, and then um, also the alcohol, can we just be eating meat and be okay? One, it's one, a great
1: question, and I, and I think no one would know. Uh, until you simply go and check your uh, uric acid level. You, who knows? I mean, there, there may be plenty of people in your community who already have a low uric acid level. They're in, in reference to this parameter. They're doing great. Um, the biggest player, as I've mentioned, is fructose. And interestingly, it's not so much the fructose in fruit. Fruit is packaged. Fruit, I don't know, is delivered uh, with fiber that slows the fructose absorption, sure. with vitamin C that helps with uric acid excretion, with bioflavonoids like quercetin that help reduce uric acid formation. So eating some fruit uh, is not necessarily, you know, in moderation, of course, going to be threatening. Uh, you know, an apple a day, it keeps the doctor away, maybe two, but, yes. you know, you can't go overboard. Uh, one fruit in particular called tart cherries or mm-hmm. cherries uh, is actually, uh, has been used and recommended for a long time decades for uh, people with gout because it contains certain of the bioflavonoids in great concentration that can actually help uh, lower uric acid. You know, on the cover of the book, you'll see there's a cherry you see it's falling from it's falling down. So the implication there is that that helps you with your uric acid. So to be very specific in answering your question, don't know the answer. It depends on what a person's, how they're testing out. Now, I eat red meat. I eat chicken. I, I don't, I've don't. i never liked organ meats. I, if I like them, I might still be eating them because I, I really get the nutritional value of especially liver. I, personally, I just never liked it. So okay. what can I tell you? Uh, but what we have learned is that uh, foods that really have a lot of cellularity, like the organ meats, like the sardines and anchovies and herring, are a higher source of purines and that can threaten uric acid levels, but nowhere near the fructose. So uh, again, I'm a meat eater, uh, very much so, and enjoy eating meat. But I'm also eating most mostly vegetables in terms of the quantities of food that I eat, because you know, the vegetables have the polyphenols uh, to help lower uric acid. But I am really uh, doing my best to get lots and lots of dietary fiber on my plate, to nurture my gut bacteria, so that is something you don't get from eating meat. But then again, you know, I, I I very much enjoy eating meat. I think it's good for me. We fish a lot. I live on a boat for four months out of the year oh, and wow. catch salmon and crabs and uh, prawns and and gobble them up. Uh, but the point is that it's not about what you're eating, but how much as it relates to those those types of foods and how much can you get away with depends on what your uric acid is, uh, how you are uh, managing that. And, you know, all the factors that go into uric acid, like exercise, fasting, sleep, all of these things are important variables to think about. When when we talk about purines and we got there because you had brought up the notion of organ meats, et cetera, understand that two thirds of the purines in your body are created endogenously, Mm -hmm. are from you breaking down your own proteins and and other tissues and then releasing that DNA and RNA that is metabolized into uric acid so only a third of the purines are from the foods that we eat. The point is that if you check your uric acid uh, in the morning but yesterday you went on a really long run or you went to the gym and you really overtrained that muscle breakdown might well transiently raise your uric acid so part of our recommendations, are that you you check your uric acid, not after a very aggressive workout, not after a night uh, on the town drinking a lot of uh, alcohol. And that way you'll get a better sense as to what your average level may be.
0: So the main source is fructose. Do you think the fruits today are similar to the fruits in the past where maybe there was a lot less meat within the fruit and they're, you know, they're not these big luscious fruits and, so maybe there's a little less fructose, right? A lot of the fruits we eat today and the way that g- we genetically modify our fruits, they're a lot sweeter, they're a lot bigger. And and I think we do tend to eat a little bit more fruit than just one, I guess, a day. Right. And,
1: and, and I don't think, with all due respect, it's an issue of genetic modification. Oh, okay. I think it's more along the lines of hybridization mm-hmm. and selection of specific cultivars without question. You know, the apple of today is massive con- compared okay. to you know even the apple of 50 years ago 100 years ago and you know, the original apples that uh, began around turkey and afghanistan were actually real they were like crab apples and they were right. in fact quite bitter very low sugar content so no question that there has been cultivation and hybridization to create the you know the, the massive numbers of different types of apples that you can find uh, that are clearly sweeter than they used to be and larger uh, but that said, i I'm still gonna go on record as saying, you know, have an apple a day. I mean, some are sweeter, some are not. you know there's a big difference between a Macintosh and a granny Smith right uh, and uh, eat the peel, that's for sure as well as long as as it hasn't been uh, sprayed. Lots of good prebiotic fiber there. right but it's a world of difference between eating an apple and drinking apple juice, right night and day. I mean our our prehistoric, or Paleolithic ancestors would have eaten whatever fruit they could find, provided it was ripe, but they wouldn't stumble upon trees where there were bottles of apple juice hanging and grab (laughs) them and start to chug them. That didn't happen. So uh, I think looking at uric acid through the lens of, you know, what it was like for our ancestors really kind of Um, And it can be reflected off the whole paleo uh, mentality of trying to emulate the entire environment of our forebears, because that's really what our genome, dare I say, expects or maybe functions most appropriately for. So, you know, what we're suffering from is this evolutionary environmental mismatch where our environment bombarding our bodies with fructose and lack of movement, lack of exercise, not enough sleep that's a strange environment for our genome. And, you know, our genome is not going to have a chance to catch up. I I wrote about this um, half a century ago. That was my first article on this topic uh, when I was 16 published in the Miami Herald asking the question, you know, what about those of us living today with this outdated machinery, meaning, you know, we're just not going to be able to adapt physiologically Uh, to this, the confrontation that we're getting from the world around us.
0: So to kind of summarize how uric acid will affect, I guess, the individual, it'll really depend on if you were to eat meat-based, it may or may not be an issue depending on your past, maybe metabolic disease, um, how much alcohol you're consuming with that, and then maybe how much fructose, whether it's From lots and lots of fruits, not like just one apple, but and and then also the high fructose corn syrup products and uh, fructose from drinks. And then depending on what seafoods, liver and um, other organs, but it really depends at the end of the day that when you test yourself and you see consistently where your uric acid value is, that's how you'll know, okay, maybe you should dial down on the organ meats maybe you should dial down on having too much fru- fructose in the day and and then whatever other diet may be beneficial for yeah, you to lower that idea. amount
1: i mean that's you know everybody uh can can really look at their own biometrics now mm-hmm. and and adjust their sleep based upon what their aura ring tells them or their uh the, their speed of their running based upon what your apple watch is telling you and similarly look at your diet based upon what your continuous glucose monitor is telling you, or your uric acid level meter is telling you, you make adjustments and refine your program. And again, it, it's really a uh, very much about the individual, but, you know, I mentioned that there are three inputs yes. that uh, foods that increase uric acid. Uh, it's important to, to really understand that we create fructose in our bodies as well. We take Glucose or blood sugar. And in certain conditions, we will convert that into fructose, which is then in this pathway to make more body fat through increasing uric acid. And one of the most powerful inputs uh, or or causes, if you will, or activation uh, activities to turn the enzymes on that convert glucose into fructose, increase our body fat, uh, is either being dehydrated or our body's being tricked into thinking it's dehydrated. The central key here is that the body senses sodium and sodium levels tell the body how well it's hydrated or not. When sodium levels go up when we don't drink enough water, can't find water when you're, you know, going across a desert or whatever, your sodium levels go up and that activates this conversion of glucose mm-hmm. into fructose through what's called the polyol pathway. Then that fructose tells the body, "Hey, we're dehydrated." we need to do something very quickly so that we have more of a resource uh, to make uh, fat. And what does that do? Why would that be something uh, that would be important if you're dehydrated? I'll get there in a minute. But you can also target this uh, enzymatic pathway by tricking your body into thinking it's dehydrated by eating a lot of salt. If you eat a lot of salt, then your sodium level goes up and your body says, hey, we're dehydrated, need to make more fat. So a great thing to understand is that you know if you're sitting down and, and, and munching on some pretzels that have a lot of that big rock salt on them, uh, it, watching football mindlessly, that if you're drinking a lot of fresh water with that, it's not as big of an issue because mm-hmm. it does tend to offset the elevation of the sodium and therefore you're not going to... Sh- activate those enzymes, make fructose in your body, turn on uric acid and make as much body fat. Now, why in the world uh, would dehydration be a signal in your body to make fat? That doesn't, what would be the point? You know, we generally think of storing fat as a a resource for energy so that when we don't have food, we can tap into our body fat. When we go, when we're uh, fasting or starving, we tap into our body fat, we can survive, true. But body fat when it's metabolized forms two things carbon dioxide which we exhale and fresh water mm-hmm. so body fat is a depot from which we can make water within our bodies and survive so when you look at a camel and you see its hump you know that that's not you know 30 gallons of water in there there's not like an igloo container in there you just put a straw in it and drink the water it's And it's the way that the camel is able to walk across the desert and require minimal or no water, because as it's metabolizing gram for gram, Mm -hmm. that fat, it's creating water. Uh, You know, one of the fattest animals around is the hummingbird. Who knew? At times when the hummingbird is getting ready for these epic flights, you know, thousands of mile flights that they make, they have as much as 40% of their body weight is fat. Because it's their depot for energy, of course. They're very hypermetabolic, but also for water. And if you want hummingbirds in your backyard, you put up a hummingbird feeder. And what do you put in that? Sugar and water. And they come right to it. They know darn well that's their key to success is drinking the fructose and making, uh, increasing their uric acid, making fat, and then we go on our 2,000-mile epic uh,
0: flight. Do you think that... As a low carb dieter, yes, maybe you'll have generally less fructose. But generally, low carb eaters eat more salt. Do you think that's a concern, or is it just it's again a very, check-
1: very, very? That's three varies. Big concern. <laughs> oh, okay. We're eating salt at a level that's uh, unprecedented. Uh, we've known for years the relationship between salt uh, consumption, added salt, and uh, hypertension. Uh, and now we we've seen for years the the relationship between salt and diabetes, salt and obesity. And now we understand why that is. So a very big issue is the added salt. I'm all in for low carb. Count me in. Provided we we embrace the notion that uh, dietary fiber, by definition, is mm-hmm. a carbohydrate. Sure. If you're limited in carbs, don't eliminate the fiber. But I think low carb is certainly um, you know, emulates what our ancestors did and is a a very good approach.
0: In your book, you have a self-questionnaire other than testing for uric acid. You can do a self-questionnaire to sort of see where your uric acid may fall. Can you talk about some of the points that you bring up and how you may be susceptible to having higher uric acid levels?
1: Sure. Well, many of the things we've already touched upon, do you favor Mm -hmm. organ meats? Do you uh, eat a lot of... um, game uh, the other thing we talked about are the processed meats you know the deli mm-hmm. meats uh, they're an issue not only because of purines but you know as well as I do they're oftentimes very very salty right. are you uh, obese that's a, a risk factor not just because it uh, is associated with having been uh, with an elevated uric acid but it in and of itself uh, increases uric acid and uh, the other thing that we talked about in that section I think is really very interesting is we go through a list of medications. And yes. when we did that in that questionnaire, I think we threw a very large net, and there were a lot of people in that net because the medications that we talk about are commonly used, uh, like aspirin, and diuretics or water pills, theophylline, um, things like uh, that are called beta blockers, and just between the the water pills and the beta blockers, that's a lot of people with high blood pressure, which is really quite interesting because now they're taking drugs that are associated with fairly significant increase in their uric acid uh, that raise, you know, that will then raise blood pressure for which they're taking the blood pressure pill. So it's really about, you know, kind of chasing your own tail. Viagra, which is getting a lot of uh, attention lately because of the relationship between Viagra use and a fairly dramatic reduction in Alzheimer's risk, we can talk about that, uh, is also a drug that will increase uric acid. So there are a number of factors uh, that we talk about in that questionnaire that I think are really important. And, you know, as you well said, uh, well before the idea of actually having your uric acid checked, this tells you, gee, uh, maybe I had to read the next chapter because this is, may very well apply to me.
0: Sure. So if you do have blood pressure imbalances and you're taking those medications, what would be your tip to start lowering the blood pressure so that you don't have to take these medications?
1: You know, there are a lot of things. Uh, I would say first that we go back to all the things that you and I have talked about already. Look at your uric acid in the context of most importantly, the food that you eat. Uh, But we do offer up some other inroads to help you lower Mm -hmm. your uric acid. Here you are on your blood pressure medication. The hope would be that based upon how much that elevated uric acid is contributing to raising your blood pressure, and it may be substantial, that here are some interventions to help lower the uric acid beyond the diet. I touched upon quercetin. So quercetin works very much like a gout pill. It dramatically reduces the function of an enzyme called xanthine oxidase that's really integral for the formation of uric acid. It works very much in the same way and almost milligram per milligram is as effective uh, as the drug allopurinol, which is a kind of a go-to gout medication. So yes. I would add, uh, or after discussing with your healthcare provider, of course, uh, about 500 milligrams of quercetin a day. Personally, I take a thousand milligrams. We can talk about the uh, why that is and maybe later. Uh, there's also another uh, polyflavonoid uh, uh, called, or bioflavonoid called Uh, luteolin, and the dosage of that that we recommend in the book is 100 milligrams. A couple of other hacks that are important, we add DHA, 1,000 milligrams per day, because it really does tend to offset the damaging effects of fructose in the liver, uh, as does chlorella vulgaris. Chlorella, people are probably familiar with, 1,000 milligrams per day, has been demonstrated in uh, clinical studies to be really quite helpful as it relates to the development of this downstream effect of fructose called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a big problem. We've gone in 20 years from about 24% of adults to now 42% of adults that have that problem. Um, The last thing would be plain old, simple, cheap vitamin C. Why? Uh, We recommend 500 milligrams of vitamin C because that's been demonstrated to uh, aid in a uric acid excretion and will help us in our quest to get our uric acid levels down.
0: What foods are high in quercetin? And I forgot what the second supplement you recommended. So we
1: we list list a bunch of them, but I'd say uh, may or may not like red onions, red onions seem to be uh, the home run as it relates to those uh, bioflavonoids, but um, certainly the cruciferous vegetables Mm -hmm. are on the list as well. Very, very important. Red pepper, green pepper, also really good choices. Uh, interesting, when you look up those uh, the uh, um, cruciferous vegetables, interestingly, you'll find that they are high in purines. And therefore, what does that mean? It means, from Dr. Perlmutter, eat them in abundance. But they're high in purines. That's not what the research tells us. Yes, they're high in purines. But again, when you're taking in the fiber, the, uh, the bioflavonoids, uh, the vitamin C, Uh, this net negative relationship Mm -hmm. with uric acid. So the studies show in what are called food frequency questionnaires, that eating more of those vegetables is actually associated with a lowering, a lower level of the uh, uric acid. And similarly, um, while alcohol does contribute to our uric acid pool, uh, various types of alcohol have different effects. Mm -hmm. We know that hard liquor will raise uric acid levels in men and women, Whereas wine in men has really no effect. And in women, wine is actually associated with a lower uric acid level, making a lot of friends there, as is coffee, I might add. That really made me a lot of friends. Beer, on the other hand, is is uh, the biggest threat that that, uh, in alcoholic beverages to uric acid because it gets you on two counts. First, yes, it has alcohol but beer is exquisitely rich in purines because it's made with a very hypercellular component called yeast. Mm. So the yeast breakdown, liberates, uh these uh, particles that form um, your ultimately purines and then uh, go on to form uric acid. So that's telling the body because it's getting those purines to make fat. And that's really a great explanation uh, with respect to the beer belly. So, right. you know, I will say that Japan, for example, is, is very much ahead of the United States in their understanding of uric acid and its role in metabolism. And interestingly, in Japan, you can buy beer that is purine-free. I mean, we've wow. seen for years uh, beer here in America that's alcohol-free, but now you can buy purine-free beer right on the label. It says that, and uh, that's a good thing to know. It means that people are starting to pay attention.
0: No, that's really good for people that are on a meat-based diet. They can always supplement the quercetin and the other ones that you mentioned. Absolutely, and they can
1: supplement fiber. You can go to the health store and buy prebiotic fiber. Yes, take a couple of tablespoons each day and put it and mix it into something, and there you go. The, the The reason we want that to happen, I mean, I think to be fair, that one of the things that you know. Is really important about an all meat based diet is missing out on dietary fiber. That's uh, important because the dietary fiber we consume nurtures our gut bacteria, allows them to do the important things that are good for our health. So, uh, you know, on a fully uh, meat based diet, by definition, there won't be any dietary fiber. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something to be careful of.
0: So butter has the form of butyrate, um, but you're right. It doesn't have all the prebiotic fibers. And so that's where I say, because a lot of people that eat meat-based, they don't eat a lot of the plants because they don't feel well. Their gut hurts um, a lot of the anti-nutrients. So if you take the supplemental form, if that's the way you want to do this. Sure. I mean,
1: I, what you call them supplemental form, and that sh- that means they should be used as supplements when when you're not getting them in your normal uh, right. day-to-day life, so they would supplement your diet. Uh, you know, many people eat a lot of vegetables, are getting a lot of fiber. That's great, but if you choose not to, then by all means, then you would want to supplement. And so you can buy powdered uh, dietary fiber, prebiotic fiber, actually organic,
0: right. that's
1: made from acacia gum. Acacia mm-hmm. is the that very large, overreaching tree and Sub-Saharan Africa, where you see the giraffe seeking shade in the middle of the day, it secretes a resin or a gum that is sustainably harvested, made into uh, a dried product, a uh, powder uh, that doesn't hurt the tree and gives people a wonderful source of fiber. So, you're right. So, people may be not eating vegetables for various reasons—they don't tolerate nightshades, they're mm-hmm. concerned about lectins, whatever it may be. But here's a, here's a workaround that I think is extremely effective. And people should know about that.
0: What is the relation with fiber to uric acid? Does it reduce it?
1: So uh, generally the consideration with respect to fiber and uric acid is how fructose is delivered. Right. When fructose is delivered in whole fruit, then it's delivered in the presence of fiber. That Mm. fiber tends to slow the absorption of fructose. So you don't get this massive uh, surge of fructose that immediately triggers uric acid production. So it's really the context of fructose delivery where fiber really shines. But other things to consider is that the nurturing effect of fiber on our gut bacteria Mm -hmm. helps to ultimately increase their productivity, increase their diversity. And this sets the stage for reducing inflammation in the human body, which is really one of our major goals as it relates to lowering uric acid. There is, uh, with higher levels of uric acid, there are not necessarily good changes that happen to the gut uh, microbial, meaning that more pro-inflammatory species are seen uh, and that increased leakiness or permeability of the gut lining is seen to be related to having a high level of uric acid. And really interesting uh, is new research that shows Uh, that what's called a fecal microbial transplant, actually Mm -hmm. taking fecal uh, material from a a normal person and putting that into the colon of a person who has gout has led to dramatic reductions in the frequency of gout attacks. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's sort of an interesting relationship with uric acid. How that is actually coming about, I think, hasn't been teased apart yet. But suffice it to say that anything we do that helps our bodies improve metabolism, improves our insulin sensitivity, reduces inflammation is a good thing. And one of the important ways we do that is by making sure that we are nurturing our gut bacteria by making sure we're eating enough dietary fiber.
0: For people that are suffering with gout, what dietary recommendations, I'm I'm guessing the supplements or the foods that have the quercetin and the other, are there tips? Because some people just suffer with gout other than Um, someone else that are eating the same dietary um, choices?
1: No question. And that is, you know, evolution versus environment, meaning, you know, we're all different. Uh, Some people are going to have higher blood sugar when they consume a particular meal, the same meal Mm -hmm. as the next guy who doesn't get, you know, they're blessed. And, uh, but I'll answer that question just one moment, but it's really in the context. You always have to think, what is the evolutionary advantage Mm -hmm. of these various things? And, You know, we think of the evolution, is there an evolutionary advantage of carrying an Alzheimer's gene? My goodness. Well, it turns out it's, or let's make it even more uh, dramatic. What in the world would there be uh, in terms of an advantage of having the genes that make our cells turn into sickles? We get sickle cell anemia. Why on earth? Uh, How could there be any advantage? Well, it makes these individuals dramatically resistant to getting malaria.
0: Mm. So
1: there, we always have to look for the upside and, Um, You know, as it relates back to gout, uh, why some people do and and some people don't, uh, certainly it has to do with their uric acid levels. Some people can get away with a higher uric acid level and not form gout, whereas others do not. pH is certainly an issue as well. But I think the the dietary recommendations for the gout patient would, would be to lower uric values. That's called love. (laughs) <laughs> the love diet. That's uh, the diet that we describe in the book, the love diet. And it's all the things we've talked about. It's the interventions we've talked about the use of the create, the creative use of supplements. Um, might a gout patient with frequent gout attacks, which apparently are exquisitely painful right. need medication. They might, they may very well, they may very well do well on a medication by and large, the gout medications are pretty well, to- uh, well tolerated by people, but, Uh, keep in mind that if you are aggressive in not just targeting purines, which has been traditionally what the gout diet was all about, you know, don't eat as much meat, cut back on, you know, your wine and cheese, uh, though the wine probably was not a a big player. But interestingly, the gout diets have always included high purine vegetables like mushrooms. And now we know that's not associated with raising uric acid. But anyway, you know, the gout, uh, patients uh, or sufferers in days of, of old were always the wealthier, you know, it was the disease mm-hmm. of King and the King of diseases. And because they ate a lot of meat and they had, uh, you know, a lot of these rich foods. Well, you know, gout really became an issue in the seventeen eighteen hundreds when we started eating more and more sugar, even to the extent that it was added aggressively in the 1800s to alcoholic beverages throughout England. So it, again, to be sure, that we need to expand the the gout diet um, to not just include eating organ meats and mm-hmm. meat in general, uh, to really focus on the the big issue, which is the fructose. And I've been you know always puzzled as to why these very well respected online um, health related websites have really failed to embrace that. There, what's going on in the background? In in you know in terms of I don't know what, I'll I'll leave it for your viewers to think about, but what might be going on in the background that keeps them from being aggressive as it relates to sugar? Uh, Maybe we'll talk about that another time.
0: I want to make sure for the audience that we understand that fructose is not just fructose um, from high fructose corn syrup or that on the label, it says fructose, that sucrose can break down. Can, Can you talk about how the different sugar molecules are also can be broken down to fructose?
1: Table sugar is uh, called sucrose, and that is actually uh, a bonding of glucose to uh, to fructose. So mm-hmm. 50-50, half glucose, half fructose. And immediately upon consumption, that table sugar that is added to everything, you know, uh, during the holidays, gosh, look at the recipes. It's really quite mind-blowing. Uh, we consume 55 pounds of uh, sugar sugar a year as Americans, 55 pound bags, each of us uh, well, as an average. I'm not included in that. I'm sure you're not. I'm not. Uh, but anyway, so we break down fructose and glucose and absorb them in quite differently. And, and clearly their metabolism is as different as, as apples and oranges, no pun intended. Um, the consumption of fructose you know, elevates the fructose in the blood. It comes to the liver. And the metabolism of that fructose breaks uh, reduces something called ATP, our Mm -hmm. energy molecule. So ATP is brought down to, then it's in triphosphate, three phosphates, becomes ADP, then it's in diphosphate, and ultimately AMP, then it's in monophosphate. So we go from three phosphates down to one phosphate. That liberation of the phosphate releases energy now that energy uh, atp is the energy currency in our bodies but this means that the metabolism of fructose is a profoundly energy consuming uh, event by virtue of how that happens when the uh, fructose is initially metabolized with the enzyme fructokinase but it's not just that that atp going to amp is consuming energy but it's sending an incredibly important signal to our bodies in terms of how that AMP then is metabolized, that drop in intracellular phosphate is uh, really quite profound because it, it, there's two pathways for the metabolism of this AMP. It can go down one pathway, which is what we want. And that is through something called AMP kinase. Right. When it goes through and activates AMP kinase, then we're telling our body that the hunting is good. We don't need to make extra fat. We don't need to raise our blood sugar. We don't need to make more blood sugar in our bodies. We don't need to raise our blood pressure. So we do a lot of things in our lives right now that activate AMP kinase. There are drugs that activate AMP kinase, like metformin, a diabetes drug. Quercetin, I've mentioned it before. Here's reason number two to take quercetin. It's a powerful AMP kinase activator. Again, telling our bodies, hey, it's cool. You don't need to make extra fat for winter. You are doing just fine. Don't need to make more blood sugar. Uh, Berberine is a powerful activator Mm -hmm. of AMP kinase. And I think most importantly, exercise activates AMP kinase, takes us down the pathway for, at least in the context of our modern world, much better metabolic health. But interestingly, when uric acid is produced, it activates the evil uh, twin of AMP kinase. And the evil twin is called AMP kinase deaminase and it's AMP deaminase activation that says, whoa, hold on a minute. We're not going to have food. We're going to start making as much fat as we can, storing that fat away, making more blood sugar for the brain, conserving water, raising blood pressure uh, because we're getting ready to to face starvation and, and dehydration. We don't want that to happen. You would want that to happen if you were going to go into a cave and hibernate for six months. In fact, that's exactly what happens in the physiology of a bear. As they are preparing to hibernate, uh, they have AMP deaminase wide open, making as much fat as they can so that then when they're in their cave hibernating, then they're burning their fat. They've shifted back to AMP kinase and they're doing their fat burning machines, which is, I think, what most people would like to be.
0: And so, when you consume a lot of fructose or sucrose, that breaks down into fructose. Basically, the AMPD is the one that's more activated.
1: That's right. And again, <laughs> this is all highly conserved in humans, right. uh, from you know previous uh, our previous ancestors being primates, and that whole shift to AMPD aminase was was an incredibly wonderful survival mechanism. You know, making not that not that our uh, ancestors were, became really fat, but again, right. just enough to get them through and to provide them a resource for making water. Uh, we don't need it now. And uh, again, yes. it's this mismatch between the signals that we're sending and what our DNA is primed mm. and ready to do. I mean, it, it, it's pretty incredible that we are now able to understand these pathways and can hack them and bring about better um, metabolic health.
0: Yeah. And I mean, essentially by eating a lot of fructose and other foods that raise our uric acid levels, we're telling our body that it's winter all the time, essentially.
1: That's right. Uh, it's uh, We're activating what's called the thrifty genes, you yeah. know, uh, where we are really parsimonious with uh, our calories, doing the most, most we can to store energy and to store you know, this resource for water. And to power our brains, to create more glucose, to turn on in the liver this process of gluconeogenesis to make mm-hmm. more blood sugar. Uh, when you do that these days, you raise your blood sugar above normals that are uh, above levels that are normal, and you ultimately set the stage for diabetes. We induce with elevated uric acid insulin resistance mm-hmm. uh, in multiple ways. One of the ways that we do. Uh, That is when uric acid is elevated, it inhibits the formation of something called nitric oxide. We need nitric oxide for a lot of things, not the least of which is a neurotransmitter, but for our discussion today, nitric oxide does two very important things. It allows arteries to relax. So that improves blood supply to the kidneys, the heart, the liver, and even the brain. And beyond that, we need nitric oxide to allow the insulin in the artery to make its way through the lining of the blood vessel and get into the cell where it can work, well, to stimulate the outside of the cell where it can work uh, to ultimately allow the the transport of glucose to form glycogen. So in two ways then, it Uh, threatens to increase our resistance to insulin, the harbinger for a type 2 diabetes. And that's something we don't want to get. Right. You know, as it relates to the first mechanism, not allowing blood vessels to um, expand, one uh, study from uh, 2009 uh, demonstrated, it was a big study, looked at 42,000 men and 48,000 women, showed that over the eight years of the study, that uh, risk of cardiovascular death in those with the highest uric acid was increased by 38%. Risk of of death from stroke was increased Mm by 35%. Risk of death from what is called all-cause mortality, meaning you became dead for whatever reason, was was actually increased by 16% in those with the highest level of uric acid. And so Mm -hmm. You know, stroke and heart attacks, that's when blood vessels don't relax and other things happen. Insulin levels are uh, rising because our bodies are resistant, blood sugar is coming up, therefore inflammation is increased. Inflammation is further bad for the blood vessels, especially in the heart and in the brain. And, you know, uh, I just have to say how incredibly interesting it is when we think about the role of nitric oxide in terms of being good for blood supply, good for the brain. Uh, for uh, many reasons, how intriguing it is that this week, a study is published looking at medical records from over 2 million individuals and concluded that those individuals who regularly took a drug to increase nitric oxide, which is Viagra of all things, had a 70% reduction in risk for developing Alzheimer's. Now. Uh, I mean, it really (laughs) nails that mechanism, doesn't it? That we need to have plenty of nitric oxide floating around to keep our arteries open. You know, Viagra is keeping blood supply open uh, for erectile dysfunction, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't just target that. It's sensed throughout the body as, uh, you know, a chemical then nitric oxide to keep those blood vessels open.
0: What are ways that we can increase the nitric oxide in our bodies? Uh,
1: it's difficult. Um, I would say, first of all, and there's been some discussion of the use of arginine. Okay. Uh, uh, as a way, and you know, so foods that are rich in arginine, so that's an amino acid, right. uh, I, you know, pumpkins, for example, strawberries apparently have a lot of arginine. Well, that's one way there are a lot of, um, um, uh, products on the market that okay. uh, are based on this theory that supply arginine, uh, to increase nitric oxide. Cause people, I think are finally getting that they want, uh, nitric oxide, at least to be available in their bodies for blood supply.
0: You mentioned Viagra as part of the medicines that can increase your uric acid level. So it's interesting, right? So in one aspect- that, That's I- a
1: very good pickup and you're exactly <laughs> right. The very medicine uh, you know, that is used to increase nitric oxide is on that list, that list of, I think, 10 medicines, including things like theophylline and aspirin. Mm. Uh, You're you're exactly right. The other big player on that list, I I want to make sure that we we really vet that well, is what are called the proton pump inhibiting drugs. Mm -hmm. These are acid blocking drugs that are available over the counter. Mm -hmm. And I think people know what I'm talking about. I don't need to give names, but they're taken by some 14 million Americans. These drugs have been shown in the journal Stroke to uh, be associated with increased risk of stroke and increased risk of Alzheimer's substantially. And we've thought that one of the reasons had to do with changing the pH of the gut. Right, That's what they do. That would change the environment for our gut bacteria. That could be detrimental. And now we know that they bump up uric acid as well. That is also associated with increased risk of stroke and Alzheimer's. So, uh, you know, everybody thinks they have to take an acid blocking drug because they can't tolerate eating a certain food. I would say, First thing I would do is find out what the food is and stop eating it and see how you do before you start taking a drug that's over the counter. Therefore, it must be safe. It isn't. Uh, People need to get a great understanding about the threat that comes from blocking stomach acid. You know, stomach acid is there for a lot of reasons, not the least of which to activate digestive enzymes and to provide, as I mentioned, this ideal environment for our gut bacteria. We start messing with that. That is huge. That that's something the human body has never experienced, and of course, we should expect consequences from changing the pH of the gut. Man, that has been so fine tuned for millions and millions of years. Suddenly, we're just going to capriciously say, "Oh, we're just going to reduce your stomach acid because you don't tolerate uh, whatever it may be." You know, and people think, like, oh, go, "If I, as long as I take whatever the drug is." I'll be fine. Well, they're generally not fine, first of all, because it's not an acid problem generally. And number two, think of the downsides. And there are many.
0: The PPIs, when they first came out, they were supposed to only be used for about two weeks. And I think on some of the medication in the inserts, it'll still say, do not use for longer than two weeks. people do. But people use it for like 10 decades. and Yeah, that's right. And it's it's so unfortunate because it reduces your stomach acid and you need your stomach acids as the first defense with the food in your stomach. And if there's any type of bacteria, not not
1: the least of which to help neutralize, you know, uh, pathogenic organisms that you might be consuming. You're right. Uh, But uh, gosh, it's hard to compete with uh, these marketing efforts. And you're absolutely right that people take them you know, without, without any end in sight. I mean, you know, they were originally developed for the, for two treatments. One was called a gastronoma, which is a type mm-hmm. of stomach tumor that increases the production of hydrochloric acid. And okay. the other thing is called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, which is another hyperacidic uh, condition. And I, I would say that people with Zollinger-Ellison, for example, might well need to take them for a prolonged period of time. But you, as you well point out, people take them, uh, you know, for forever. And uh, that's worrisome. And especially the fact that, you know, it's, it's over the counter and, you know, getting back to this notion of uric acid in the brain, a really interesting article came out in the, uh, I think it's annals of rheumatism or rheumatic diseases in uh, 2017 and looked at um, 1,600 patients and followed them for 12 years, and what they did was they did an MRI scan of them initially, and a neuropsychological evaluation uh, every two years initially, and then every two years. So they're following these people after they've checked their uric acid levels, and they found that people with the higher levels of uric acid had about an 80 percent increased risk of uh, of cognitive decline of dementia, and a 50 percent increased risk of specifically Alzheimer's disease and the 166% increased risk of what is called vascular dementia or mixed dementia. Now, having just talked about, you know, this nitric oxide connection and the inflammation that's brought on by elevated uric acid, no one should be surprised uh, by these, by these figures. And this is really important to know, especially as it relates to 55% increased risk of Alzheimer's, a disease for which we do not have any pharmaceutical treatment that can reverse this condition. Call it like it is. I mean, we all watched this new wonder drug that got presented in February, 2021. And what happened with that? You know, finally clinicians said, you know what, this doesn't work. We're not going to prescribe it for $55,000 per patient per year another thing to think about. But, um, you know, I would welcome an Alzheimer's drug, I promise you, I think it'd be what a powerful tool that would be. But in the meanwhile, let's talk about what might be getting people into this trouble uh, to start off with. And more importantly, make them aware uh, of these relationships so that they can make changes in their lifestyle choices.
0: You mentioned a little while ago that um, our bodies create sometimes imbalances to protect the body. And so what is the reason for Alzheimer's in terms of what mechanistic benefit is there for getting Alzheimer's?
1: Well, I'm not sure that that maybe there's a selective advantage to actually developing dementia. I don't think so. I think that what we're seeing in Alzheimer's is a consequence of an evolutionary, meaning Mm -hmm. a gene, a genetic environmental mismatch, because the, the, um, incidence of Alzheimer's is increasing, not just because our population is aging, but far in excess of that. Alzheimer's is a neurometabolic disease. It's a bioenergetic disease. It's a disease for which one of the important inroads is compromised, ability of the brain cells to use energy, to acquire and use energy, mostly the use of energy. And it is contributed to by a couple of things, most of which is something called insulin resistance, Mm -hmm. which you can bring about in your body by your lifestyle choices. We need insulin in the brain, not just for allowing glucose to get through the blood brain barrier or, or, or insulin for that matter, but also insulin is a A trophic hormone it nurtures Mm -hmm. neurons if you want to grow neurons in a petri dish you cover them with insulin and they sprout like you put fertilizer on them so we need that right but when insulin is not working not doing its job that's threatening for the brain it's the reasoning behind the attempt to treat alzheimer's by using intranasal Mm -hmm. insulin you've you've probably heard about that so i think that it's not that there's a selective advantage to becoming demented but there was a selective advantage, for example, to increasing inflammation to help us deal with the multitude of organisms that we were exposed to. Right. Certainly, uh, the various types of parasites in the gut. Uh, to this day, uh, people in uh, very uh, underdeveloped or uh, very uh, or populations that are, are you know lack westernization. Uh, and primitive cultures are examined, they have actually higher levels of the APOE4 so-called Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. gene, higher levels. uh, And in the context of their bodies being uh, colonized by parasites and helminths, which are worms, uh, their risk of Alzheimer's does not increase dramatically with age. So You know, these older populations of these people who are APOE4 or APOE44, where we would say, gosh, you have a 12-fold increased risk for Alzheimer's, in the context of their environment doesn't happen. They are actually selected uh, to be uh, advantaged by carrying APOE44. But in our sterile environment, where we're not challenged by these helmets and these uh, parasites, then we're uh, amping up inflammation Uh, that is directly destructive to the brain. And we see that we see, you know, dramatic uh, uptick of these inflammatory markers uh, in patients with Alzheimer's, things like tumor necrosis factor alpha interleukin one beta, that uh, really support the notion that Alzheimer's is the brain on fire, on fire, meaning inflamed. That's where the word inflammation comes from being on fire.
0: As a neurologist, do you then recommend if people are not able to get as much energy in their brain and that's what's causing some of the dementia. Do you ever recommend another fuel source like ketone? So getting on a ketogenic diet? Well, it's not
1: just that I recommend it. The answer is yes, but uh, let me me unpack that just a little bit because it's really kind of interesting. Research demonstrates that when you use fluorodeoxyglucose or a radioactive type of glucose to image the brain's glucose utilization, you see in the Alzheimer's brain's uh, areas of what we call hypometabolism, mm-hmm. parts of the brain that cannot utilize glucose anymore, perhaps because of this insulin resistance. And these are the so-called Alzheimer's signature regions, the temporal parietal region, the, uh, the hippocampus, you know, a, a regions that we know are dysfunctional in uh, the Alzheimer's brain. Importantly, these abnormalities on these functional images predict Alzheimer's well before there's a clinical recognizable decline in cognitive function. Wow, Pretty interesting to think about that. This is a prediction because the brain is hypometabolic in certain areas that we're able to say decades ahead of time that this person is uh, on the fast track. These same individuals who demonstrate these abnormalities in their temporal parietal region show that when they are challenged with a radioactive tag acetoacetate a ketone body mm-hmm. if you will these areas light up and are ha- happen to be just fine means oh. that they are functional but in the Alzheimer's brain they're not functioning they're there but they just they can't open the door and let the fuel come in suddenly you go around the back door and give them fuel in the form of ketones and it lights them up And a doctor by the name of Dr. Matthew Phillips in New Zealand has recently published a report showing improvement in various metrics of cognitive function, including activities of daily living in moderate-stage Alzheimer's patients put on a ketogenic diet. Who knew? Who knew that beyond just targeting the energetics of the brain... We know that the ketogenic diet, particularly beta-hydroxybutyrate, actually acts uh, to change gene expression for the better, that the utilization of ketones as a fuel source in the brain is associated with more energy production, but less production of the damaging free radicals. That really underpinned why Dr. Matthew Phillips uh, performed his study. Uh, He had also done the study previously on Parkinson's patients and found really kind of the same kind of dramatic improvements in these patients in terms of comparing them to the standard diet that they had been eating. So uh, the answer to your question is yes.
0: So why don't they use that as a tool until they find a medication? Why don't they put most patients on a ketogenic diet?
1: (laughs) We're waiting for a pill, right? There actually was, and probably still is a product, a medical food that was Designed for this, uh, designed to increase uh, the provision of ketones to the brain. Because this is not news. I mean, this has been known for decades, and uh, and you know, doctors were really reluctant to prescribe it because, my gosh, it's a nutritional thing. Why on earth would I want to pay any attention to that? I want my patients to take pills. So uh, this product came out in good faith. I thought it was just revolutionary. Uh, targeting brain energetics. And lo and behold, uh, not very many uh, people are prescribing it.
0: That's really unfortunate. As we're wrapping up, I know one of the lifestyles you bring up in the the love diet in the book is that uh, fasting is one option in terms of how to benefit with lowering uric acid. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what's so beneficial about fasting?
1: Sure. Well, fasting is a real uh, nice hack for improving your metabolic health. Uh, what's really critical here is that uh, folks understand that transiently fasting will be associated with an increase of your uric acid for a few days. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when you're fasting, you're catabolic, you're breaking down your tissues for fuel, you're liberating those purines, uh, you're augmenting uh, these pathways, and then the uric acid level will transiently go up. But typically what is observed and reported in the research that has looked at this is that after the fast has been completed, uric acid comes back to baseline or actually slightly better, mm. which shouldn't be surprising. So that's why we, we dialed in a little bit on the fasting. Specifically, we talk about a, a something called time-restricted eating, whereby you simply each day compress the amount of time uh, during which you eat. Uh, you eat food. So you might eat between Uh, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning and six o'clock at night. And then you have a fast from whenever you finish your dinner, let's say 7 p.m. until 10 o'clock the next morning. When you eat that meal that is called break fast, you eat your breakfast. So uh, Dr. Uh, Sachin Panda has really made Mm -hmm. it clear that, This is a really neat thing to do as it relates to your metabolic health. And that is, you know, the end of the day, the end of our time together as well, what this is all about. It's about, you know, this powerful new, only recently discovered tool uh, that in addition to other things that people know about exercise, keeping your blood sugar down, you know, reducing your consumption of refined carbohydrates uh, is another powerful tool that can help you rein in your metabolism, number one, but also something that can inform you as to how you're doing by simply having your uric acid checked that that you would do at home. So it's very empowering on, on those counts.
0: I think that's really good. And this research is so powerful to help people understand why fructose is not ideal. I think people in the wellness space have understood that for a while you know, we check blood glucose and CGMs for a while now. So maybe it's now time to also start tracking our uric acid levels for the reasons you mentioned. It's really powerful. So thank you so much for this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for our time together today. Thank you for the book. It's you broke it down really easily for someone to understand and then follow the love diet and um, focusing on really nutrient dense foods, but while also being mindful of the foods that may raise your uric acid levels. And then I think once people are checking their uric acid, they can modify the diet according to their needs. So thank you for all of that.
1: Thank you. And great to see you today. I appreciate it.
0: Okay, guys, I hope that this information has been eye-opening for you. For me, when I started doing some research for my gout clients, I found this whole information about uric acid and fructose and what this all means for the meat-based community that's adding a lot more fruit and honey to their diet. You can find Dr. Perlmutter's Drop Acid book on all book platforms, as well as on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You can find Dr. Perlmutter at his website, drperlmutter.com. And I will put all of the information in the show notes. We got so into the conversation that I forgot to ask where the audience can find him. He is also on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook as Dr. David Perlmutter. I will again, put all the information in the show notes. I am going to do a follow-up video about what all of this means for the meat-based community. So don't go out there just yet and stop eating all meat. That's not his message about eating purines. The biggest takeaway is that we need to reduce our fructose and our overall load that may affect our overall uric acid levels. Make sure to check out my solo video where I just give a quick breakdown and my thoughts on how this affects the meat-based communities. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.